Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. I was quite surprised by something I heard. Because I heard one of the other church leaders refer to the worship at those meetings as being charismatic. As that conversation continued, that phrase was repeated several times. And in the end, I felt I had to intervene. I just asked a question. At which of our meetings has the worship ever been truly charismatic? Because I think I must have missed that one. The question caught a couple of people by surprise. And um, then people started to cotton on to what I was meaning. But some of them continued to look surprised and even mystified. So I carried on. I think there seems to be some confusion. Some confusion over the use of a couple of words. Contemporary and charismatic. Particularly when used in relation to worship. I would agree that at city celebrations, the style of worship that we predominantly use is contemporary. But until we're happy to hand the evening over totally to God, to listen to the contributions that the Holy Spirit makes on his behalf, it can't ever be described as charismatic. This is a major misunderstanding in our church today about the use of this word charismatic when you compare it in particular with the use of the word contemporary. And the comment that I made had such an impact on one of the Pentecostal guys who were there that he's actually decided to do his dissertation for a master's degree on that subject. He told me that this week. Let's get this straight. You can have contemporary worship without being charismatic, without letting God get involved at all. Or you can be charismatic without being particularly contemporary. That is just about the type of songs that you sing. Here at Gateway Church Doncaster, our desire is in both terms of our beliefs and our expectations, in terms of our outworking and our practice, we are seeking to be charismatic, to be listening to the voice of God and responding to it, to be expecting to see the Holy Spirit's presence evident in our meetings, to see the gifts of the Spirit in regular use in the church in the way that Scripture talks about. So before we go any further this morning, let's just pause for a moment and look at what that means. To be charismatic in our theology 
means that we have to take the view that the charismata, the grace gifts of God, described and demonstrated in the New Testament period, are still available and operating in the building up of the church today. So that means we believe we can experience the healings, the miracles, the prophecy, the speaking in tongues, and all the other gifts described in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with those chapters. If not, we will be looking at them. This view is in direct conflict with those churches who believe that the gifts were only available during the lifetime of the apostles. That view is referred to as cessationalist. It's called that because they believe that the use of the gifts has ceased in the church. Now I don't want to get into all the scriptural arguments between the two different viewpoints. However, what I would say is if you look at church history, it supports the view that the use of the gifts have never stopped. There has always been a charismatic expression of church life right from the first century through to today. Sometimes, however, it has been heavily persecuted and remained hidden. But to be charismatic in our practice means it isn't enough to just believe this. It should be affecting our lives. Both as individuals and when we meet corporately. As we read through Acts, we see that often in that book, the gospel was preached as an explanation of something miraculous that happened. So what that tells us is most of the time the miraculous was not happening in church meetings. In Acts 3, it says that Peter and John were going to the temple. And then they saw this man sat outside the gate of a temple in great need. He cried out to them. He was hoping that they would give him some money. But instead, they healed him in the name of Jesus. Now notice, they didn't invite him along to the next healing meeting. They didn't even offer to carry him into the temple. As they were going about their own business during the day, they just reached out to him and let Jesus touch his life. And the result was he was never the same again. But if being charismatic has an impact on our life, it does have an impact on our meetings too. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 14 about what our meetings should be like. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. 
if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to others sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's often under a section entitled, Orderly Worship. But bear in mind, God's idea of what is orderly can be very different to ours. He's not talking about straight lines of chairs. He's not talking about quiet and dignified behaviour. You know, when God's Shekinah glory fell on the temple, people's feet was just swept out from underneath them. They fell on their faces in worship. It says the priests were so affected that they couldn't continue with their rituals. Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke about the passage in 1 Corinthians 14. And this is, what, this is what he said. We so far departed from the kind of thing Paul is speaking about here, but the church, speaking generally, is as she is at the present time. Therefore, put it like this. What is the setting here? It is a typical picture of a meeting of the early church with men and women filled with the Spirit. The apostles not giving them an account of what should happen in a formal service as we would normally have today or such as you may have in a cathedral. You're in an entirely different realm. I see very little in common between what the apostle describes and what we are so familiar with. No, the whole thing is different. Let us remember that the contrast in his mind is that type of jollification under the influence of drink. The kind of service, the kind of meeting Paul is describing is something which has got, at any rate, something of that element in it. There is joy, there is freedom, there is happiness, there is inspiration. And we must not shut that out. Surely, what the Apostle is describing is something like this. I have no difficulty, personally, in understanding it, for this good reason. There was a type of meeting that once was very popular in Wales. It was called a happy evening. Or a happy night. What happened there? Well, this is what happened. A number of people would meet together in a farmhouse. There would be an enormous kitchen 
with the fire on the floor looking up a great big chimney. And friends and neighbours would all come together. They were coming together to have a happy evening together. And how did they spend it? Well, they spent it like this. They would start by talking in general. And then somebody would tell a story he'd heard. But there was always a man there who had a harp. And after a while, they'd say to him, Why don't you sing to us? And he would sing. He might have composed a little poem specially for the occasion. And so he would sing it, accompanying himself with the harp. Or perhaps he'd come without preparing anything and they'd say, well, think of something now. Of course, this isn't describing something Christian. But that was non-Christian, secular. And they would be drinking as they did all this. And so this man in his semi-drunken condition, would improvise. And then another would recite a poem he'd composed. Or he would, again, at the moment, compose a poem, and he would recite it to them. And there would be great cheering and hand-clapping. And so everybody made some sort of contribution to that evening together. That was the great characteristic of the evening. Nobody was silent, just looking on. Everybody took part. One did this, one did that. They were there, all of them, in this free atmosphere, perhaps worked up by the singing, partly by the drink, and this excitement of it all. And there they were, having a happy evening together. They did that in the ancient pagan world. Most nations have something or other corresponding to that type of thing. There are people, I gather, who still meet together in public houses and other places to have what is called a sing-song. It's the same idea, but there was more, spontane more spontaneity and more individual contributions. It was a truly folk culture. That then is the sort of thing that you and I have got to bear in mind as we try to understand this particular statement. Here is a gathering of men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God. And each one of them has got something. One a psalm, one a doctrine, one a revelation, one an interpretation, one a tongue. And here they are, over full with this. As it were, and wanting to say it. And as each one gave his contribution, the others rejoiced and praised God together. And they were all in a state of great joy and glory and happiness. Now I don't know about you, but every time I read that passage, that picture of how those meetings in the early church were, 
full of the Spirit, full of His power, and full of joy. So much praise and worship that it just naturally flowed out with all those revelations that God whispered in their ears when they were straining to hear them. You know, it makes me think how much I want our meetings to be like that. I know we have contributions. I know people pray out. I know people come with prophecy. But actually we're still a long way from what we read about the early church. But before we get into that, let's just sit the, set the scene. The view of the world today is very different from how it was then. And so it's important when we look at these writings that we understand the setting as it was at the time. In our culture, particularly in the West, we split the world into pieces. In fact, we even split people into different areas. We differentiate between the physical, between the emotional and the spiritual. When we look at healing, we tend to see it differently if a doctor uses his skill to cure us than if the cure comes as a result of someone praying. A leg growing when hands are laid on it is somehow different to taking a couple of paracetamol for a headache. Now the biblical worldview didn't take that distinction. It didn't make it in the same way. Even the wisdom of doctors is a result of God's common grace to mankind. It's just there for everybody. And so they would see God's hand at work however healing came to someone. There's a lot of truth in that. But our worldview leaves us struggling with it. And yet we know when we have a physical injury it can so easily affect our emotional well-being. It can even affect our spiritual well-being. We know that emotional problems like stress can give rise to physical symptoms. They can give you ulcers. They can give you indigestion. In the same way, spiritual problems can give rise to emotional and physical illness. And understanding who we truly are in God helps us with so many of those issues, like identity and self-worth. These areas are not as distinct and separate as we like to make out. And our God, our God, who created and sustains everything, is able to bring solutions right across the board. He doesn't worry about our artificial divisions. 
Bible recognises that the spiritual realm is having a constant impact on this world. It recognises that we're in the middle of a battle. A battle that is being waged in the heavenly realms. But a battle that has a direct impact on the world around us. And so it shouldn't be a surprise for us when we find that evil powers, just as well as godly ones, can bring about supernatural phenomena. If you think back to Exodus, Exodus 7, Moses is appearing before the Pharaoh. This is what it says. So Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. The court magicians were able to copy what God was doing. And so in the, in the background, when we read things in the New Testament, we need to be familiar with that concept. The Corinthians were familiar with it. They were living in a pagan society. In fact, they were quite used to seeing pagan supernatural experiences because there were these mystery cults around at the time. So when we see the supernatural, we need to use discernment to differentiate between what is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit and what is a counterfeit work coming from some other source. And often it's quite easy. Often you can easily see the difference because there's, there's a number of very simple indicators. Okay? A genuine work of the Holy Spirit gives the glory to Jesus. It says Jesus is Lord. Whereas the counterfeit work brings denial of the authority of Jesus and the cross. A genuine work of the Holy Spirit leaves the person in control. Whereas the counterfeit often has the person totally out of their own control and often into matters of excess. A genuine work of the Holy Spirit relates the life in the local church. Whereas the counterfeit isn't under authority and it's individualistic. A genuine work of the Holy Spirit releases people. Whereas the counterfeit brings bind and control. A genuine work produces good fruit. The counterfeit brings unhealthy things like addiction. The genuine work builds up the individual and the church. The counterfeit brings breakdown and division and dissension. 
so what are these spiritual gifts? If you've got a Bible with you, you might like to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Scripture uses a number of different words which tend to get translated as spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. In that sentence, he uses the Greek word pneumatikos, which literally means spiritual. It means things belonging to or manifesting from the nature of a spirit. So what he is emphasising here is that these things do not come from us. They come from a spiritual source. They're spiritual things. They come from God. And so what he does even in that first sentence is he starts to differentiate them from our own skills and abilities. And then if you read down as far as verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Here he uses a different word. He uses the word charisma, or charismata is the plural. It literally means things given in grace. And it's where we get the expression from that we use sometimes that these things are grace gifts. They are given to us. They are undeserved. They are a free gift. There is nothing we can do to earn them, to merit them, or to be worthy of them. And then in verse 5, he then says, And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And here he uses yet another word. The Greek word which tends to get translated as service is diakonai. And it refers to the way in which we are able to be servants of one another. So here what he's now beginning to do is show us that these gifts are not being given to us so we can perform and attract an audience, but actually in order to serve one another. They're not for our own boasting. And then as you carry on into verse 6, he says, And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And here he uses the Greek word, Energimata. It tends to be translated as working or activity. And what it implies is energy, but divine energy. And he's using that there to emphasise that these gifts are able to produce the tangible work of God. They're not empty, powerless things. They have energy in them. As you move on into verse 7, you then find the word manifestation. 
it says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good this time the Greek word is phanerosis these gifts are not some hidden talent but they are an action that demonstrates and reveals that God is at work that's why the word manifestation gets used so often. The word manifestation literally means dancing hand. It's like God's hand is dancing over a meeting. Touching someone here and someone there. Just letting his fingers lot on people. So in just those seven verses, Paul tells us an awful lot about the background to these gifts. He tells us that they're spiritual in nature, but they come from God, not from within ourselves. He tells us that they come in variety. They're not all the same, but they do have a common source. He says they're a free gift, that we cannot earn them and we don't deserve them. But they're there for us to use in serving one another, not something that we should be boasting about. He tells us they produce tangible results. Could call it fruit. They're not empty. They're not powerless. He tells us that they're manifestations. God's dancing hand. I love that expression. And that they are for the common good. That in itself tells us quite a lot about the gifts before we even start to look at them in any detail. And um, I think those elements are, are worth us thinking about. Because they, again, they help us bring discernment about the source and the motivation of gifts that are brought. Now, there are three main views on spiritual gifts in the church today. And when you start talking to others about spiritual gifts, you find they fall into one of the three on the whole. That is ignoring the people who've just never heard of them, never thought of them, never had any teaching on them. Obviously that's a fourth camp. But talking about reason stances, there's three positions. There's what's referred to as the traditional view. A lot of churches take this traditional view. Um, and I've already mentioned it in passing and, and referred to it as cessationalist. Because that's where it is. Basically it's an understanding that the miraculous gifts stopped. They stopped at the conclusion of what was called the apostolic age, when the Bible was finally put together in a canon of scripture. And that argument is usually based on um, a verse, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. And it says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when that argument's put forward, um, what is said is that the perfect there 
is taken to refer to the completion of the canon of scripture. And, it, and, and the argument is taken that we don't need the gift anymore because we now have scripture to show us the way. I don't take that interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. I personally take the use of the word perfection there um, to refer to our state when Jesus returns. And when we come to perfection, when Jesus returns again, these things will pass away. There's a slight variation on this theme as well. Um, and that was that the gifts died out because of a lack of faith and because of a decline in the church. Uh, that's what Wesley tended to argue. And uh, in particular, Wesley argued that they would return as the church was restored. I have a problem with both those views. And, and the problem's a simple one. They ignore the fact that spiritual gifts haven't ever in fact died out in the church. They have through some periods of history been very much marginalised, under persecution and hidden. But actually throughout church history there has been charismatic expression of Christianity alive and well. So we look at the other two camps. The first is called the possessional. If you wanted to give it a subtitle, it could be subtitled, Discover Your Spiritual Gift and Use It. Make a good title for a book. It takes the viewpoint that each of us has a gift or a talent that is given us from God. And our job is to find out what they are, to accept them, and then use them for God's glory. I find that this interpretation doesn't sit very comfortably with some of the shades of meaning in Paul's description of the gifts. It also practically means that it allows people to go around saying, I have the gift of. And that obviously, if you're not careful, can give rise to a spirit of pride or arrogance in some. And so I personally find the third of the views uh, the easiest. And this takes view that any Christian may operate in any gift depending on the needs of the situation and the will of God. Basically it says, our God is sovereign. And if he feels you need a gift in a particular situation, he will give it to you. This view looks at the passage in 1 Corinthians 7-11 to and it interprets it as meaning that when Christians come together, each one of us is given one or more of the gifts that are referred to so that the church can be built up. They're given in that situation to whoever God might decide and they're given for that time. 
I personally think it also makes better sense of 1 Corinthians 12.31, where it says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. It also makes better sense of 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, where it says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might decide. And there's some other verses that I think it aids in the interpretation of. It also means that I do not carry my gift around with me. Instead, when I come across a situation where the miraculous is the only way forward, I am dependent on God to give me what I need for the situation that I'm in. I think we need to hold these other two views slightly in tension. Because you do sometimes find people who regularly move in certain gifting. But I think they would often say, but it doesn't mean that they can say, I have. Just that God uses me regularly in this. What's clear is that whenever Christians come together, it's an expression of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter whether we're meeting in celebration, in small group. It doesn't matter whether it's just a few gathering for prayer. We should be expecting God to be in our midst and the miraculous to start breaking out. The main context of the passage in 1 Corinthians 12 right through to 14 is that when the body meets together, the hand of God is active. He's distributing gifts to us all. And if you want to look at that passage in context, you really need to start right back in 1 Corinthians 11.17. This is what James Dunn said. Membership of the body means charismatic membership. The many members who make up one body are not simply individual believers, but individual believers as charismatics. That is, believers through whom the Spirit of grace may manifest himself in diverse ways at any time. To be a Christian is to be charismatic. One cannot be a member of the body without sharing the charismatic spirit. We should therefore have an expectation of being used by the Holy Spirit. We should be used as a means of blessing to others through spiritual gifts whenever we come together. I also believe that the gifts of the Spirit are there to function as the church goes out as well. Scripture talks about these things being signs to unbelievers. When you read through Acts, what you see is the miracles weren't happening in their meetings. They were happening in the community. 
The scriptures teach that the gifts are freely given of God without any individual merit. They're not a reward. They're not for personal holiness. You don't even get them because you're particularly mature or have been a Christian a long time. They're not a mark of our maturity. And as a result, we will see young Christians who receive and exercise spiritual gifts. But these gifts need to learn to be handled with maturity, with love, to build unity, and in good order. And that is what is the subject of that passage in 1 Corinthians 14. The spiritual gifts are not a sign of having arrived. They're really just a sign of having begun. And so without the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the gifts could become unhelpful. Because our spiritual growth depends on our character. And it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives rather than the gifts that develop that. And so Christian community needs to be displaying both. We need to be developing a ministry and an effectiveness. But that requires a development of character. It it requires both the fruit and the gifts in our lives. And if you want to look at that further, have a look at 2 Timothy 2.2. The purpose of the gifts are always to glorify Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's function. That's what John says in John 16. And that applies whether the gifts are being exercised in church meetings or outside. It's to edify, to build up the church, to join together the body of Christ. It does say tongues can be used to edify ourselves, but that was never intended to be something that we should use to display our abilities. It's to promote unity. As we read through those chapters, we find the gifts are valueless unless they're used in love. They've got to be exercised in an orderly manner, not just used chaotically. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul deals quite firmly with the danger of some feeling inferior because they don't have certain gifts or superior because they do. Um, You can find that in verses 14 to 20 and uh, 21 to 26. The gifts are given sovereignly by God. They're given as a result of us seeking them in prayer. They're given by the laying on of hands. 
We can learn how to exercise them through discipling. But I just want to finish this morning by briefly touching on one of the problems of the Corinthian church. It was a form of spiritual pride. People who claimed to have a special knowledge. The problem was even more pronounced in the Colossian church where a super spiritual group started talking about a fullness that they had reached that others weren't into. Later, this all developed into the first major heresy in the Christian church. It's called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word for knowledge. Because more emphasis was put on some kind of mystical spiritual knowledge than could be achieved through the saving power of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. There are similar dangers in the charismatic movement today. And I'm not here referring to the contemplative Christian life that evangelical activism can learn so much from. But instead, the dangers come from these things. And I would just urge you to watch out for them. Super spirituality, which is unrelated to real life. Our spirituality should have real life application. Untested guidance. Our prophecy needs to be weighed. Pictures for pictures' sake. God always brings results. If these things are not unlocking situations, we should be concerned about them. Inner healing taken so far that we forget that the main job of the church is to evangelise the world. Our commission is to go and make disciples. Legalism. I smiled when I wrote this, having just had a week of prayer and fasting in the church. But actually activities like prayer and fasting aren't to be carried out as rules. They are most valuable when they come out of the desires of our heart. Seeking experience for the sake of experience. We shouldn't be dominated by our feelings and experiences. But probably the most common of them all is going around different meetings or different churches looking for spiritual highs. Our life will not be dominated by spiritual highs. It's great when we soar like eagles, but there are times when God deliberately takes us into the wilderness 
And he does it for purpose. It was Jesus coming out of the wilderness that really started his ministry. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 